Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Sojourn Church. Uh, my name is Matt. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor of Sojourn and kind of the, the lead church planter starting this church. We're thrilled that you're with us on this beautiful Sunday evening. We've had quite a few of these in a row, and so uh, excited you are still indoors with us and not outdoors doing a cookout or something like that, although we can do that afterwards. Um, if you're new with us or maybe you're still just checking us out, we like to say around here that we're a group of ordinary people. If that hasn't been evident about the time that you've already been here, then I don't know what else will be, uh, but that we've been changed by Jesus in the context of family, um, living on mission to our city and to our community and to our world. Um, if you're interested in learning more, we are actually doing a kind of a Q&A, I hate to say class, but for lack of better terms, next weekend called Sojourn 101. We forgot to put that announcement out there. It'll be a time for us to share a little bit about who we are, our story, what our values, and kind of flesh out for you um, what we feel like our purpose is in this city. And then you can ask, you know, all kinds of questions. And if it's ones that are really difficult, things I want to answer, I'll just hard pass to whoever's next to me, um, perhaps Tyler or maybe my wife or someone like that. So bring your hard questions. I'll pass those uh, to them. Today is a special day in our culture as we get to celebrate mothers and for all that they mean to us. And while I want to recognize this is a joyful celebration, I called my mom earlier. My oldest son woke up and made his mom breakfast. I don't know how it tasted, but he made it for her, and that was a valuable thing for her. I also want to recognize that this day is not necessarily um, happy for everyone. It can bring up a lot of pain for some people. And so there's there's women in our culture who want children but are unable to have children. Um, there are, are people who have just had different uh, challenges with their own mother. Maybe their mother passed away in the last year or just at some point. And so um, I want to be sensitive to, that, well, sensitive to that. Well, at the same time, I want to celebrate moms. Like moms need to be celebrated. The moms in the room, you do a lot of work. And then those who aren't moms, if you aspire to be a mother, you'll get to learn how much work you get to do uh, with that role. And so really, I want to celebrate all women today. And so if you're a woman in this room, we want to celebrate you and thank you for everything that you do um, for us. And so uh, one way we want to do that for those specifically who are moms as a small a token of our appreciation. We have these little flowers out there with cards on them. Please make sure you grab one of those on your way out, and we say Happy Mother's Day to you as a small way to honor you. We are nearing our home stretch in the book of Ephesians in a series we've been calling United in Christ. Um, after tonight, we'll have maybe two or three more weeks, and then we'll get to wrap up this series. Um, and we have some very exciting things in store for the summer, uh, some different topics we're going to look at, some different passages, and we're actually going to have a couple of guest speakers come in. So don't say amen to that one. You might be thinking, yes, we get a break from this guy who's been up there a lot recently. Um, last week, we ended with verse 21 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. That's actually where I want us to pick back up tonight, um, and you'll, you'll see why here in just a minute. And tonight, I'm calling this sermon, as you heard Tyler read for us, the passage, United Marriage. And so uh, this may not necessarily be the funnest passage to preach, but Paul's continuing to kind of throw those curveballs at me the last few weeks. And we like to go verse by verse, passage by passage at this church, and just kind of dive right in to see uh, where it is that the Bible takes us, whether it's where our culture takes us or whether where it's where we want to be or not. Um, by the way, before you tune me out, because I know that not everyone in this room is married, if you're single in this room, what I hope that you'll see tonight is what you should be looking for in a spouse, 
when you get married. So if you aspire to be married and you are single, say, hey, these are things I can take. And this can be on my list of qualifications. Like, okay, if you don't have this, then no, I don't want to marry you. And you can't know what qualities to look for in a spouse if you don't know what God's design is for marriage. So hopefully we'll all walk away going, this is God's design for marriage. Whether you are married and you're not living out that design or whether you're not married and you're looking for a future mate at some point. So tonight we are going to talk a lot about marriage. Um, I'm no expert in marriage. I have been married for almost 12 years. We're just a couple weeks shy of our 12th anniversary. And so so uh, no expert, but I do have 12 years under my belt, and uh, for better or for worse. Over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators, um, empirical descriptions of marriage, of health and satisfaction in the United States have been in steady decline. That's probably not a surprise to you guys. In fact, the divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today only 60% are to married parents. Most telling is that over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were married in 2008. Uh, the reasoning goes that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, and surely many of the other 50% of marriages must be miserable. And so that's where all of these stats kind of come in and these studies. And so hopefully tonight, though, we're going to see what a united marriage looks like. And you've probably heard this before. All those stats are just as true in the church as they are outside the church. But hopefully, uh, even though we're not a huge group in here, we'll change those stats by looking at what it is that marriage really is in the Bible. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible and you want to flip into one, we have blue ones in the back. Feel free to grab one of those. If you have the app on your phone, and I believe it'll be behind me on the screen here. So Ephesians 5 verse 21, Paul says, and I'm kind of entering to the middle of a sentence here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The reason I want us to start at verse 21, where we ended last week, is because the word submission, which I have in really big bold uh, in my notes here, it connects both set of verses for chapter 5. And so it connects us to the, the verses that we looked at last week that were talking about, all about wisdom and being filled with the Spirit and how it is to live a, a Spirit-filled life. And then it's also going to um, link us into the verses that we're looking at tonight. So it's really kind of this bridge between the two sections. And Paul is going to give us an example of what it means to submit to one another, and he does this by using family language. And what we're going to discover in these verses is that authority and order are established by God. So some of the things I might say tonight might, you might either, not hopefully not confuse you, but they might make you maybe a little tense or maybe even a little mad or a little angry. Uh, some of them will not be popular opinions, but please remove myself out of this as we look at the Word of God. And hopefully the Word of God will soak over you and speak to all of us tonight. And so um, also, if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's really what we looked at last week, is how do we live this spirit-filled life, then we will have the power to face the challenges that marriage throw our way. So everyone who's been married in here, I know we have some people who are married at less than a year around here, or maybe a, a getting year and a half, and then we have 12 years, and I'm not, you know, kind of plus from this angle. And so regardless where you are on that spectrum of marriage, you've all realized, it only takes being married a few days, like, wow, this is actually a lot harder than I thought. Like, the honeymoon phase wears off, and there's some challenges here. But if we're filled with the Holy Spirit as Christ follows, Followers, and we are, we are able to face those challenges. And we probably can all attest to, if, you're, if you follow Jesus, that when you're filled with the Spirit and you're challenged in marriage, it goes a whole lot better than if you're kind of trying to do it all on your own. 
The picture of marriage that, that I want us to think of, it's not of two needy people. I think sometimes we think of people who are, who are single when they get married, like, okay, now they have each other. Like, now they're going to be able to make it through life. But the picture that Paul gives us of marriage, it's of two people who, who really know their identity. They know their identity is ultimately in Jesus, and that that person that they're going to connect their life with is going to actually disappoint them, but that that's going to be okay. And so then they enter this marriage covenant together. I think so many single people I talk to today, what they're looking for is their hope is in that spouse, even within the church. It's like, man, if I could just find that spouse and do the same. Like, no, that spouse is still going to let you down. They may, they may help in that. Yeah, hey, it, it is nice. Like, I get to cuddle next to my wife every night. I get to sit next to somebody and, and watch TV and do all those things. It's, it's, it's nice. Like, I have a friend. Yeah, you know, and much, much more than that. But I, I couldn't put my ultimate hope in my, my spouse. Because if you do that, what happens when something happens in your spouse? Your spouse disappoints you or, God forbid, your spouse passes away, which is going to happen to somebody at some point. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. And so Paul's looking at, these are not two needy people going, this is where my hope is. My hope is in Jesus. But now that we're also getting married and we're covenanting together, what does that relationship look like? And so the verses we're looking at are especially important in light of our present culture that we found ourselves, broadly speaking, the U.S., but then we can even narrow it into Portland, where the foundation for marriage is crumbling around us. People are confused about gender, about marriage, and about family. Some are even outright hostile to the historic Christian view of marriage. You know, people are opposed to this idea, where it's almost like if you hold that view, now you are the bad guy because you hold a historic view from the Bible of what marriage actually looks like. Andreas Kostenberger and David Jones in their book, God, Marriage, and Family, stated, For the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family, made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children, has in recent years begun to be viewed as one among several options. And so in that book, they point out that this is not simply a cultural war, it is a spiritual war. And the enemy would love nothing more than to confuse people and tear down God's plan for marriage. And the thought is that if we can be confused of matters of what constitutes a, a marriage and family, then what other areas of normal life can we be persuaded to question? And so I feel like this is where a lot of times the, the work of the enemy, so to speak, where the attacks come, is, come in is on identity issues and, and issues of, of family. I like John Stott's definition of marriage when he says, marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned with a gift of children. So now with that definition of marriage in mind, let's continue in the verses where we're going to be focused tonight, which is in verses 22 through 33. We'll start in 22. Paul says, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's stop there for just a moment. So Paul goes on to further explain this idea of submission, which is why I want to start with verse 21, by coming up with a very controversial statement and explaining the right order of marriage. And he starts by focusing on the wife. So ladies, he starts focusing on you. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now to be clear, it does not say wives submit to all husbands or women submit to all men. That's what we call abuse and a misuse of the text. And I think uh, many times that's what people have walked away with. They've heard, oh man, women always have to submit to every single man or, or all wives have to submit to every single husband. That is not what it says. It says wives submit to your husband. 
So if you don't have a husband, then you're not submitting to somebody else's husband. But it says, submit to your husband. And so we really have to pay attention to context to gain a proper understanding of what this verse is actually telling us. So the verse right before 22, verse 21, where it talks about submission, is in fact in Greek, the sentence 22 reaches back to 21 to borrow the verb through a complex Greek structure that we don't have time to actually explain tonight. And please don't bring that to Sojourn 101 next week because I probably won't be prepared to go into details as well. But if we want to grab coffee, we can do that and we can try to get into it further. But the point is that the command to the woman is to submit is specifically an application of principle. And so think of the principle. It's actually given to all believers, those in Christ. And so it's given to all Christ followers. And submit is actually a military term, which means to submit to your agenda to the greater whole. And so in the military, you don't ever respond to an order by saying, well, that's not good for me right now. If any of you have been in the military, been around the military, that, that does not fly. No, you set aside your agenda for the sake of the army, even if it costs you your life. And so that's what this idea of submission means. And so Paul is making a specific application to wives. It's this principle given to both the husband and the wife. And so it's both husband and wife are submitting to each other. It's just in different ways, which Paul goes on to explain to us. And so we can't ever forget that it's really this idea of a mutual submission. So let me stop and ask, does this mean, because it starts with women submitting to your husbands, does this mean that, women, that men are superior to women? Because I think I've heard a lot of people kind of make that argument. That's what this means. Absolutely not. Both genders are created equally in the image of God, and they're heirs together eternally. So if you've been under that understanding by, by some false teacher or by some other you know, explanation, please, they, they told you wrong. They steered you in the right direction or the wrong direction. The submission is in deference to the ultimate leadership of the husband for the health and harmonious working of the marriage relationship as God designed it. Andreas Kostenberger once again says, while some may view submitting to one's husband's authority as something negative, a more accurate way of looking at marital roles is to understand that wives are called to follow their husband's loving leadership. I would say the key word there is loving leadership. We can all look at examples of abuse of this and say, well, she was just submitting to her husband. Like, no. Was it, was it in a loving way that he was leading his wife? Then no, she should not have been submitting to those things. I know that this biblical idea of wives submitting to their husbands, it's not a very popular opinion. It's not even accepted by any. But I've heard that the husband-wife relationship can be compared to a slow dance. Now, I'm, I'm a horrible dancer. You guys don't want to see me dance. But I can slow dance. At least I think I can slow dance compared to any of the other dance moves that are out there. And in a slow dance, I know enough about it to know that one leads and one follows. One initiates, the other responds. But both are necessary to dance. I mean, imagine if I'm trying to slow dance and my wife's just standing here. I'm like dragging her feet and maybe trying, you know, spraining her ankle. It takes two to tango, right? It takes two to slow dance for that to work. And so that's kind of what how the, pair, the picture of marriage is here. But we have to understand these verses in light of what is actually telling us. It says, the husband's the head of the wife, which is the grounds for the wife submitting to the husband. But then Paul goes on to tell how this is best modeled. He says, best model by Christ's headship over the church. This means that we can't claim this was only for Ephesians. It wasn't only for the church at Ephesus. That's the other thing. People look at this and go, well, that, that was back then. This is really, really old. Like, we're in 2019. We're in the United States. We are in the city of Portland. Like, this cannot have been for us. Like, no, the way that, that he describes it here is Christ's headship over the church, which stays the same forever. And so it's given to all people at all times and all places. And so this is also given to our culture. This is also given to the church at Portland. This is given to Sojourn. This is given to us here. And so it's important for us to note a few things that this does not mean. Let's start there. 
head does not mean that the husband is the source of the wife. Okay, if you, if, you, if you guys know much about me and my wife, my wife's way smarter than me. So it cannot mean that she gets the source of everything she knows from me. She's way smarter than I am. This does not in any way suggest an inequality in the sexes as both sexes are equal. This does not mean a wife is to slavishly obey her husband. And on that note, if you are in an abusive relationship, anyone in here, if you're in an abusive relationship, please let us know because we're going to practice the spiritual gift of calling the police tonight. And then some of the guys from Sojourn will go over to your house and we will have a confrontation with your husband. Do not stay in an abusive relationship. That is not what this means at all. This does mean, however, that both men and women are image bearers of God and that both are equal in standing and spiritual gifts and service. This is why we don't ever want to be a church that's made up of primarily male leadership. But both men and women, as we collectively operate out of our gifting as God has ordered it. So yes, it says wives are to submit to their husbands. And we're not going to change that. That's what the scriptures tell us. Who is the head? The husband. But who turns the head? The neck. And so while the husbands are the head, the wives are the necks that turn the head. And, you know, so I I make the decisions as the head, but my wife's the one who constantly turns the head. We were talking about that this weekend. I don't even know what what we were talking about, but it, it, it applies here. And it's worth knowing that God could have easily just reversed the order. And so men, you know, you might hear guys and they're like, well, you know, I'm the head and God ordained it this way. Like God could have switched that. You had nothing to do with that decision. So before you get on your high horse that, man, I'm this man, like, no, God could have reversed that order. Why he did this, we don't know exactly, but that, that is how God set it up. And we don't have time to go into an exhaustive detail on this subject or, or even on the subject of gender roles. Perhaps we'll do that at a later, later date. Maybe we'll do a specific series and just kind of set that aside. But my thoughts resonate here with Kathy Keller. If you're not familiar with Kathy Keller, that's the wife of Tim Keller. They wrote a book together called The Meaning of Marriage. It's a really, really great book. I actually forgot I had it on my shelf till yesterday, and I'm skimming through it, and it's just packed full of some, some great stuff for this uh, passage of Scripture. And Kathy, like many women, struggled with this idea of submission to her husband and, and what the Scriptures laid out for. And so a quote that I grabbed from that book, she says, A discussion of how gender roles work in marriage must begin with a look at the good that God originally intended, how men and women have corrupted that good, and what Jesus has done to redeem gender roles. Only then can we move on to the hazardous concepts of authority, submission, and headship, and the idea of a helpmate. And so hopefully we'll be able to pick that back up at a, at a later date and really do more of a study um, on that. Now look back again at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so men in the room, specifically married men, Paul is showing us our duties as husbands. No, we, we are, it doesn't say men submit to your wives, but we're called to give up ourselves for our wives. So what's easier, submission or giving yourself up? You tell me. We are to love our wives sacrificially. We are to lay down our life for her, which is quite the opposite of a male domineering requiring his wife to wait on him hand and foot. That is not what this passage is telling us at all. Tim Keller, he says, your marriage must be more important to you than anything else. No other human being should get more of your love, your energy, your industry, and your commitment than your spouse. Your relationship with your spouse, husband and wife, should be the most important relationship that you have. 
And the type of love that we are to give our wives is the type of love that Christ gave the church. Which kind of love is that? It's a sacrificial love. A love that can be described by foot washing. Now, I should be careful because my wife loves to get a foot massage. I'm up here talking about foot washing, and she's going to be like, hey, I heard you tonight. I said amen. Can I get a foot massage? But hey, it's Mother's Day, so you guys can keep me accountable. Uh, honey, I will give you a foot massage tonight, and everyone else can ask you in the next week whether or not you got that foot massage. I signed myself up for it. This can be described as a, a Golgotha love, which ultimately culminated in Christ dying for the church. So husbands in the room, would, you, would people describe the love that you have for your wife in this way? A sacrificial love, a love that you're willing to give of yourself and to give up yourself in order to protect and care for your bride as Christ did the church. I think we get a proper understanding, the whole wife's submission to husband thing really doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. I think the problem is that most of the time we focus on that. Like we, we put this wall up as soon as we read that, just like people do in Portland when I tell them I'm a pastor, this wall goes up. And so there's this wall, as soon as we read that, wife submit to your husband, they don't hear anything else that's said. But it's worth noting here that Paul devotes three times more space to the role of the husband sacrificially loving the wife than he does to the wife's role of submitting to the husband. It's about three verses on submission of the husband. It's nine verses on how the husbands are to love the wife. Paul's going to continue describing this love starting in verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul is not implying that the power of the husbands, in order for the wife to be sanctified as cleansed, that it, that it falls on you. But we have a level of responsibility as husbands to promote our wife's holiness that comes through Christ alone. So practically, this could take on all kinds of forms. But for me and Andrea, for my wife, this means a few things. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm the example. I do this perfectly because if you ask her, she'll tell you that I don't. But I'm, so I'm kind of, I always preach to myself I'm up here as, as well as you guys. And so for us, this could mean a few things. It could mean allowing her time away from me and from the kids so that she can have a time of kind of soaking and, and washing in the word of God and, and whatever's going to really refresh her, the idea of a Sabbath. What does that look like for her? And, and I'll tell you this, it looks different for her than it does me. I'm like, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of town. And that's not necessarily what she likes to do and enjoys, but it's me allowing her that time and that space to do it. It means giving her time of equipping at trainings. Uh, just recently, she went to a thing that's under the Gospel Coalition for Women, where they're, they're really uh, teaching women how to, to teach from the Bible and how to proclaim God's Word. Things that she enjoys, that she wants to do. And me saying, you know what, I'm going to take the kids for the weekend so that you can go and do this. It would be unfair if it was only me getting to go to conferences and getting poured into. And so allowing her that time and that space. It means proactively building her up in Christ to completeness in Him. Full disclosure, we haven't done this at my house, but we went through uh, training to go overseas. And so we, we spent a couple years overseas. Most of you know that. And when we were doing our training, they talked about this importance of giving our wife that, that time and that space. And the recommendation was uh, finding a space in your house, if you have the space, and getting a chair that your wife picks out that's comfortable to her. And let her, like, set it up with, you know, a little end table, whatever patterns, if it's a candle, if it's chocolate, if it's whatever it is, and saying, like, this is your spot to get refreshed that's within our house. Now, we haven't done it because 
because we have three young kids and my wife doesn't really find that refreshing at all. It doesn't matter what kind of decorations it is, but maybe you're in a stage of life where that works for you. And you kind of like, man, that's almost like the sacred chair where those things happen. But I think it could be a really good idea. But the point being allowing your wife time to refresh before the Lord. We find a, a couple of purposeful clauses identifying the goal of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. It says Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. And that Christ sanctified the church that he might present himself in splendor. And so Paul is arguing is that so much like salvation, is marriage is so much like salvation in our relationship with Christ that Paul says you can't understand marriage without looking at the gospel. That you can't fully understand what a perfected marriage is without looking at the good news of Jesus. In this section, Paul reiterates that a husband's call is to self-sacrificial love for his wife by comparing his love in regard to his own body. So men, hopefully you love your own, own body, but not to an unhealthy degree. But men, you should love your wives as you love your own bodies. Most of us, now there are times and exceptions, but most of us don't hate our own bodies. We like to take care of our own bodies. That's why we eat the foods that we eat, or maybe the lack thereof. That's why we, maybe we work out, or maybe we go get a tan, or whatever things that you do, you do it because you love your own body. It says, love your wife that way. And so you should love your wife as you love yourself. You should love your wife and care for her in the same way that you do your own flesh, because you are one flesh. Under the covenant of marriage and union with God, you should love your wife as you love yourself. And as previously noted, Christ is our ultimate example as he sacrificed himself for the body of the church. An, ex an exec excellent example of this comes from a guy named Wayne Grudem. If you're not familiar with who Wayne Grudem is, he's a world-renowned theologian who was on faculty at a school called Trinity University for 20 years. And he had served with some what they would call theological giants. And uh, if you're a theology nerd, you know who he is. You know who he, he kind of worked with. But if you're not, you may not know who he is. But his wife suffered from fibromyalgia, a disease that causes pain to many muscle groups, sometimes to where you, you can't really even hardly function. And so it got so bad that she couldn't even walk upstairs. She couldn't do common household chores. So they started praying, and they just tried everything they could, all kinds of medicines. They'd see doctors. There was no relief. And the, the pain was made worse by cold weather and humidity. And Trinity University is located in the city of Chicago. So you're talking about humidity. If you've ever been there in the summer, it's very humid. Talk about cold weather. If you've ever been in the winter, windy city, very, very cold. So it's not the ideal place to live if you're suffering from this disease. So they were invited on vacation by some friends who lived in Mesa, Arizona, and they learned that, wow, this warm and dry climate, my body reacts very differently to this type of weather and this, this place in the country. They started making numerous trips there. They were able to actually ride bikes together after 12 years and never to ride bikes. And so one, one of their trips, Dr. Grudem looked over his wife and he said, you know what? I think I would like to move here. But there are no seminaries found near this place. A few days later, they started flipping through the yellow pages. You can tell the story's a little dated if they're flipping through the yellow pages. Although they did drop off a yellow page book to my house recently. I'm not sure why, other than to recycle it. Um, and they were flipping through, and they found Phoenix Seminary. And so Dr. Grudem, because he loves his wife, so I'm just, I'll call it up. Calls up the school. Says, hey, I'm, this is kind of our story. Let's see if there are any openings. And the school was interested. And after much prayer and thought, Dr. Grudem began pondering on the implications of Ephesians 5, verse 28. That you should love your wife as you do your own body. And he said to his wife, he said, Margaret, if I were suffering like this, I would want to move to a place like Mesa, Arizona, for my own sake. And so his bride didn't want to move, though, because her husband had such an influential role and kind of a prestigious position they worked really, really hard for. And she knew it would be, in a sense, a step back by going to Phoenix Seminary. So there they were. 
He wanted to move for her sake, and she wanted to stay for his sake. Finally, when Phoenix Seminary told them that they would, they offered him a job, this will give you a reduced uh, teaching load with more time to write and more time with Mrs. Grudem. They thought this was a, a beautiful incentive, and they began the, the processing of the possible move. Eventually, she came to her husband, and she said, I'm going to trust you to make the decision. So in the end, she followed her husband, who made a great decision and sacrifice in order to care for his wife. And so I look at that and say, what an excellent example of a wife submitting to her husband, but then also an excellent example of a husband sacrificially loving his wife. I think that was, as I was reading through and studying, I was like, man, that's such a great example because he was walking away from something. Now, in the end, God opened doors, and he was able to still teach and do things that he loved, but he was walking away from everything he knew and kind of where he's built up. Chicago is way more known as a city, and a lot more happens there. But he was willing to walk away from that in order to love his wife. And his wife was hesitant because she knew what that would mean, but at the same time, she said, I'm going to follow your lead in this. Finally, in verses 31 through 33, Paul says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so husbands, we are to love the wives in the same way that we love our own flesh. This idea originates from the creation account in Genesis where God joins the first husband and the first wife together. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so the idea that Paul is presenting to the Ephesians here and to us is referenced all the way back before there were really any marriages in the world at all. In the Bible, if you think about it, as I'm looking at what Paul is pointing out, and you're looking all the way back to Genesis, and, you're, and you fast forward to where we are today, it's like the Bible is such a practical and relevant book when you actually start to read it, especially these last few weeks. They've been, they've been a little bit more challenging topics. They're not as fun for me to necessarily come up here and, and, and preach, but it's very practical, and it's very relevant to our life in 2019. And then right after quoting Genesis 2.24, Paul says that this mystery refers to Christ and the church and this relationship that Christ has to the church. And Paul interprets the original union with the husband and the wife as a model of the union of Christ and the church together. And so from the very beginning, marriage was to be a picture of Christ and his bride. And so my question is, have you said yes to this groom? Of, of Jesus? Have you said yes to this groom? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you a member of his body? Do you share this union with him? Have you responded to the word of the gospel and have been cleansed? It tells us as the two will become one flesh. But then in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. So if you haven't made that decision, I would say, why not? Why would you not want to join in with this union? Why would you not want to come to the Savior? Why would you not want to turn from other lovers and embrace the lover of your soul, the one who died for sinners just like you and just like me to make you his own? And if you have been changed by this Savior, if you have entered into this relationship, then why be tempted to chase other lovers? Love the, the Savior supremely and pattern your life after him according to his word. And so as we commonly do, as we, as we wrap up our teaching time, we're going to move into a time of response. We'll respond a couple of different ways. The, the first way we're going to respond, which we do most weeks here now, is we're going to uh, go into a time of reflection through the elements of communion. This is a reminder for us every single week when you get up out of your seat and you take the bread and you, and you break a piece off of it, that Christ's body was broken for you. 
So I, I actually like to visualize that, you know, and I may, that, that may sound gruesome, but just like to remember what that actually is. So when I rip it off, not just I'm ripping off a piece of bread to, to dip, but to really remember, like, man, Christ's body was shed for me. It was broken. And then when I dip into the blood, remember that his blood was shed for us. If you've never responded to, to, to Jesus or you need to just pray with someone or talk to someone, it doesn't have to be about marriage. There could be something else going on. I always like to kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm hanging around the back. If you say, hey, I don't know you, I don't trust you, or <laughs> I'm not sharing that with you. I understand. I have prayer cards in the back. You can fill those out. Drop that in the box. Don't have to put your name on it, and we'll be praying for you this coming week. And then after, after we, uh, a few moments, the we'll, final thing we'll do is we'll have Mandy come back up and lead us in a final song of, of worship to King Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond accordingly. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.